Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. Hello, everyone. This is Shannon, and I am here to chat with you, of course, about books. This is, after all, the Book Bistro podcast, so I'm guessing that is what you're here for. Today, we have an author interview with historical novelist Erica Roebuck about her latest novel, The Invisible Woman, which I absolutely adored. It came out in February and features a disabled World War II operative who I knew nothing about until I read this book. Erica is a fount of information about the war, about historical research. She was just such a joy to talk to. I highly recommend the book and any others that she's written. So we're going to get into the housekeeping information and then we will move right on to the interview and then I will wrap up with this week's new releases. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am chatting with author Erica Roebuck, whose novel, The Invisible Woman, was released here in the U.S. on February 9th. So, Erica, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Can we start with you giving listeners a little bit of an introduction to The Invisible Woman? Sure. The Invisible Woman is the true story of World War II secret agent Virginia Hall, an American woman with a prosthetic leg whose clandestine work with the French resistance undermined the Nazis, created escape lines out of occupied France, and helped hundreds of free French guerrilla fighters liberate a secluded mountain region. So this was someone that I had not known about. And so when I saw the synopsis for this book, I was really intrigued because, you know, we learn some things about World War II, but not always about specific people and especially not specific women. Yes. Yes, I've always been fascinated by women in history shadows. And I've, I've been writing about the women in the shadows of American writers for a long time. Um, so when I found Virginia, who's a woman who put herself in the shadows to serve uh, the Allied cause during World War II and then beyond in the CIA, I was just fascinated that I'd never heard of her because she's like a real life superhero. So since she's not someone that is sort of talked about on a regular basis, what kind of research did you have to do in order to feel like you could know her well enough to write her story? Well, I was able to piece together 
sort of a puzzle. And there were about 20 different sources where she was either mentioned within a book about spies or a book about the organization she was a part of. There was a, a biography that was written about her um, that had some information. At the time, the new biography, A Woman of No Importance, was not yet released. Um, but uh, one of the most valuable pieces of information that I got came from meetings with Virginia Hall's niece, Lorna, who lives in Baltimore. So she was able to share family photos, family stories, and really color in my understanding of Virginia Hall through my own research. Um, I'm also fortunate enough to live in Maryland and the National Archives in College Park has all of Virginia Hall's declassified files. Uh, the CIA Museum and Complex is in McLean, Virginia. So all of these places were a short drive from where I live so I could really uh, dig into her files. That's awesome. I feel like for so many people, you know, you can't find all the information. So then it becomes sort of the author's job to flesh out as best they can. So I think it's very, very cool that you were able to have access to actual information to kind of help you in that process. Yeah, that's my favorite part. I love the research. I love the detective work, <laughs> but um, putting it all together can be a challenge, but um, I really enjoy it. So when you finally were at a place where you felt like you could sit down and start writing this book, what was your writing process? Um, this was, you know, I've heard writers say, oh, this book tried to kill me. And I used to roll my eyes because, you know, it's a book. It's not brain surgery, as Elizabeth Gilbert has said. But um, no, I really felt like this book tried to kill me. And I think it was because Virginia Hall did not want to be found. So she really made me work hard. And then she didn't, the story that wanted to be known took a long time to rise. So the first iteration of the novel, I thought I would set it in two time periods to try to make it relevant to the modern reader and use a fictional Iraq war veteran, a female, an amputee and to juxtapose her story with Virginia Hall's. And it quickly became clear that that was not working. And so I put everything back into the past and I had Virginia Hall's story woven in with another secret agent and the special operations executive, the two women as foils for each other. But Virginia showed me she didn't want that either, um, which basically means that the, the work does not work. So the writing does not move. Um, after 100 pages, of course. So then I started writing Virginia's first mission in Lyon when she got started. And that was about a 200 to 250 page process and realized that was all backstory for her second mission. And that is the novel. So with the 350 page novel I wrote, there are about 350 pages of discarded material that I had to write to get there. Um, but it was worth it in the end. <laughs> So I'm guessing then that it would have been really difficult for you to create kind of an outline for the novel for you to work from since it was very hard to sort of know what story Virginia was trying to tell. That's right. Each time what I do is I, I create a timeline based on the real events and then I loosely structure the story around Freytag's pyramid with the inciting action, the rising action, the climax, those kinds of things. So I just had to keep doing that over and over again. Um, and finally, when I discovered what story really needed to be told, why did she go back to France with a price on her head? Who would do that? Um, and start asking those questions. Everything started clicking into place. It was like finding you know, the missing light bulb in a strand and you put it in and everything just lights up. So as I read this, I was especially interested in sort of how Virginia functioned as this sort of secret operative when she had a disability. You know, you don't hear a lot about 
people working in the war effort when they're not perfectly able-bodied. And so I really enjoyed learning um, about that aspect of Virginia's life and her work. Yeah, it was fascinating. In, in the first place, she was rejected for foreign service many times, which was the great love of what she wanted to do um, because she was a woman. And then add on the fact that she had uh, a what yeah, disability at the time, um, it was just an absolute no-go. And until the French, you know, she volunteered to be in the French ambulance service. She was in France during the fall and uh, they were happy to use anyone who was willing to help. And it was through that activity that then when she got back to London, um, they were able to learn what she had learned and get her intelligence on what was going on. And that's when she got on the radar of this of the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. And these were people who operated in the shadows, who broke the rules, um, sometimes who operated under the guise that, you know, any means necessary. So it was just a kind of rebellious organization. And so they were open to having women, any woman who wanted to help out. That is amazing. I feel like in fiction in general, the disability experience is not represented um, nearly as much as it should be. And so to find that in a historical novel was amazing. And I'm so glad that you were able to bring it to life on the page in such a way. You know, I, I'm glad you said that. And that meant a lot to me too. You know, my late mother had a debilitating condition of scoliosis where it was not only an S-curve, but also a 90 degree S-curve. So it, it dramatically affected her day-to-day -day life from the time she was born. Um, and my mother was told that she wouldn't live to be a teenager and she did. And then she did an experimental surgery where they straightened her spine and within months it was curved again. And then she was told she would never have children and she had two. She was told she wouldn't live past 50. She lived to 62. So she was always beating the odds. Um, and I could also just see how she had just the practicalities of how do you have to plan your day when you have limited lung capacity, how far away you can park, what, how many things you can put into a day. So I had a little bit of an understanding of it because I just lived with my mom all those years and watched it. So it was, it was a natural transition for me to work uh, with a character, with a person who had issues, not the same, but similar issues. So did you see kind of a lot of references in your research to things that she perhaps did differently because of her leg? Or did you kind of have to weave those in yourself, like using your own knowledge and experience? It was, it was kind of a cocktail of both. Um, but one of the things that struck me over and over again, to me, it, it seemed like it would be such a big deal. And prosthetics at the time were nothing like they are today. You know, today they're lightweight. They have... Um, unbelievable mobility and technology behind them. Back when Virginia needed to use it, it was a clunky piece of wood styled, you know, it was seven and a half pounds. It was fashioned with belts and buckles all the way up to her hip. So it was no simple thing to get around with it. But what fascinated me was that it really wasn't a huge issue. And what I, what I mean by that is she dealt with it practically, almost the way the British dealt with the blitz every night. Yes, it was terrible. Yes, she had to go underground in the tube, but the next morning you just got up and went about your business. And that was very much her determined spirit. Yes, it can be troublesome. Yes, it requires some planning, but I have work to do. So, you know, it was very motivating to read that how she, how she operated with it. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. She did not allow herself to sort of fall into the oh you know I wonder how this is going to work or that's going to work or mm -hmm. oh you know what if I can't do this or that thing mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And if she, if she saw maybe a long distance, she would have to travel that would cause a lot of pain on her knee stump. Then she would, she would get a bike and that was easier. You know, there's just different, different ways that she planned for it. Um, and she dealt with it very practically. So you had mentioned um, a little bit earlier in the conversation that you have been writing about women in history's shadow for quite a while now. And I own um, a couple of your books, one about Zelda Fitzgerald. Yes, Zelda. um, And then Hemingway's Girl is the other one that I own. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know what sort of captivates you about the stories of the women that so many people don't know about, like what sort of brings them to the forefront for you? Well, to me, it, it comes from observation in my own life, um, my own family that I've watched, you know, with my mom, my grandmother, and then throughout history, I think there's a quote that said anonymous is usually a woman. And it just, it's so interesting to me how women do so much and support so much, but very often don't have recognition. Um, and very often for them, that's all right. Uh, but I, I want them to have the light shined upon them when I see it. So when I read about how F. Scott Fitzgerald used diaries and letters and actual correspondence with Zelda to write his own fiction, and then I hear Zelda make a comment in an interview that says, plagiarism begins at home, that to me is, that's the beginning of, of a search where I want to find out more about that. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I, with the Hawthorns, when I saw Nathaniel Hawthorne reading about him, how he had such a difficult time interacting socially. He had a severe lack of confidence. Um, he, he wasn't good with money. He didn't know the practicalities of budgeting. And then to read that his wife, you know, saves money for two years so he can quit his job and write the Scarlet Letter you know, there's, there's a lot to that. And, um, and I, I think it deserves recognition. And then to come across someone like Virginia Hall, who said she didn't want to take any interviews because too many people she knew had, who had spoken had gotten harmed from it. Um, but mm-hmm. it's been 75 years. And these stories are, are stories that we all need to hear. I think they're inspirational, they're motivational, they're redemptive. Um, and so it's a good time now to start telling them. I would agree with that. I feel like we have so much in terms of fiction, like we have so much fiction about the Second World War. And yet, still, if you look into the history of that war, there's still so much that we don't know. Yeah, when you have a world at war, and the same with World War One, there are just endless stories, and the stakes are very high. And I think I, I, for one, am very fascinated by people who live lives where they, you know, they're starving and they're afraid and yet they still work hard to resist hate and evil. Um, and to me, I'm always asking myself what I have been brave enough to do that, what I've done that if I had children, what I've closed the wind shutters or what I've opened them and helped people, you know, it's, it's something I'm always asking myself. And these, um, these world war stories, I think make a, put a reader in that position. And it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting exercise. So can you tell us anything about what is coming next for you now that Virginia's story is out in the world? Yes, I, um, you know, one of the early iterations, the novel I mentioned, there was another woman in the SOE who had sort of started haunting me a couple years ago. And when I say haunting, I mean, I have vivid dreams where these people speak to me, I come across them when I don't expect to. And I, you know, I do get a little mystical about the process, as I've mentioned, and um, this woman, was has been haunting me for years and I felt like 
her story needed to be told. But to be honest, it was too sad on its own. It would have been a, a tragedy. And I don't, I didn't want to write that. And so I put her aside and there was another woman I came across during all of this research, another American woman who was hiding pilots in France. Um, she was married to a Frenchman. She ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp and um, has, a, has an incredible story of courage and redemption. And I was reading interviews with her about Ravensbrook, and she started talking about the woman who motivated all of them to stay well, to stay strong, to have courage. And that woman was Violet Jabo. Violet is the one that had been haunting me for years. And I finally felt like she said, see, you have to write about me. So what I have here is a story where Virginia Lake, it's another American Virginia, and Violet Jabo, two very different women doing very different things in the war whose paths converge at Ravensbrück concentration camp where women resistors were placed. And the two of them um, have beautiful journeys together. They're very different women and they make good foils for each other. And because um, one story is so uplifting, even though the other is quite tragic, they, they work well together. So that's what it'll be. And it'll probably come out um, next February. Ooh, okay. I will be keeping an eye out for that. I have read several things um, that take place in Ravensbrook, most notably, I think, um, Rose Under Fire by oh, Elizabeth Veen. Okay. It is a, a young adult novel, although it's, it's a lot darker than I think I expected, given that it is marketed as, as YA. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but she does some phenomenal World War II stories that kind of focus on teenagers and sort of the role that like young women played in wow. the war effort. Yeah. Yeah. I had my exposure to Ravensbrook came through the Lilac. Was it the Lilac Girls? By ah, yes. Yes. And um, I did tell my editor, I did not want to write a concentration camp book. That was important to me. So, so that except, except you are. So the, the way the novel is structured, um, there's sort of pre-war during the war, Ravensbrook post. So it is a piece of a giant puzzle. So it's not the whole puzzle, but it is most certainly the the climax of the puzzle. So So when you're not doing research for a book that you're writing, are you much of a reader? Oh, huge. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a reader first. And I'm almost always reading historical fiction or history, biography. Um, it's, that's what I'm obsessed with. So have you read any historical novels lately that you want to recommend? Yes. Um, in the past month, I've finished The Yellow Wife by City. Oh, Kujan. yes. So, so good. Um, Universe of Two by Stephen Kiernan. And that's about the project to create the nuclear bomb. For World War II, oh. fascinating, and it's a real it's a real conscience book, um, and I, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, oh, Jennifer Robeson, Our Darkest Night, set in World War II, uh, Italy, which is not oh, a area that I just I finished that. Oh wow, yeah, I loved yes. that. So, yeah. it was very very good. <laughs> yeah, Jennifer Robeson does some remarkable things. Um, I loved The Gown by her, which was the novel of the Royal Wedding. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in France. That was yes. <laughs> and also um, Good Night from London, which well, kind of focuses on the, on the Blitz. Okay. Um, it's just a, it's like that kind of journalist story where, you know, she's mm -hmm. reporting the news and then kind of gets very much caught up in sort of the issues of living through the war in a way that I don't think 
the character fully expected to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's very, very well done. Oh, I'll have to add that to my list. Sometimes they sneak by me when I'm reading for, for blurbs or research. Um, oh, yes. Not by. Well, and if you think about like how many books come out at any given time, it is almost impossible, I think, to keep up with everything. I know, I know. There's just not a good way to, uh, to do that. Yeah, there's not, there aren't enough hours in the day. No. So a lot of people who are readers also kind of want to write. And so I'm wondering if you have any tips or advice for people who are maybe thinking about writing, um, especially writing in a historical setting. I would recommend to read widely in the genre, whatever genre interests you, and to find a subject matter that really haunts you, that consumes you, that you're dreaming about, that you that you kind of become obsessed with. Because when that's the case, you can't, you know, you can't get to your computer fast enough to work. Um, I've had friends who've tried to slog through something they're not very interested in, and it just doesn't work. And the the reader feels what the writer feels. They, you know, they say no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Um, you cry, you buy. I've heard that too, which is funny. <laughs> so whatever really stirs the writer. So find the thing that obsesses you and then you'll be able to write it. So do you find that there is like a place in your writing process where you, you struggle more than others? I realized, you know, everyone is different and people talk about just like staring at a computer screen and not being able to put words down. And I've always been really fascinated by the people who can push through that. Yeah, I mean, there are different difficulties at each stage. So right now, my revisions for the next book are due on February 26th, which is a challenge in the midst of all of this. And um, the hard thing there would be, you know, I just cut two chapters yesterday. So then the domino effect and making sure that I, I clean up after the mess that I make. It's like setting off a little bomb in the manuscript and then having to clean up all the shrapnel. Um, <laughs> So that's difficult, but I think the hardest thing for me is when I'm in the drafting phase, so blank page, and I have to transition from that to real life. So, you know, for me, if I'm in 1944 in an intense scene crossing the Pyrenees with the Gestapo at my back, I really become involved in it. So then to have to get up and go to the carpool line and, you know, pick up my sons from school and help with homework and make dinner, it's just such a a jarring transition. So I think sometimes I feel like um, when I'm in that stage that I have something tapping my shoulder all the time. And that is very unmooring. Um, So it's good to be through the drafting phase. Yes, I can imagine, especially now, like with the whole pandemic thing, I imagine that it was, it could be anyway, difficult to kind of carve out that same time with everyone at home and everyone's lives kind of functioning differently. Yeah, well, I'm very fortunate for two reasons. One, my sons are older. So I can, you know, my oldest, my youngest, excuse me, is 13. And then I have a 16 year old and my oldest is in college. So they are pretty self-sufficient. They can, on the online days, they can take care of themselves. Um, My husband is able to go into an office. um, But in the early days when that, when it, when everyone was home, um, we have this uh, little river place it's this little tiny place down about three miles from our house so I would go there sometimes and work oh okay Um, I do go there to work sometimes uh it's usually when I'm in the revision phase and I do reading out loud to make sure things sound right with dialogue and 
I can kind of pace around there. So that's, I'm very fortunate to have that. That is excellent. Gets you out of the house, kind of a nice like change of scene. And also then I'm guessing you have some more privacy um, than you might have with everyone all at home. Yes, because even though the youngest is 13, I still, they still appear at the office door with a thousand questions a day. So, <laughs> Ah, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your kind of release um, schedule here and also in preparing for the next novel to chat with me and to let listeners know a little bit about who you are and, and what you're passionate about. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And before I let you go, can I ask you to let listeners know the best place to find you online if they want to get in touch? Certainly. If you want to send me an email, uh, my website has my email address, which is info at ericaroebuck.com. That's the email. Uh, My favorite social media is Instagram. Um, So usually you can find me there. Uh, Those are the, the two main places. All right. Well, thank you so very much. Thank you. Okay, so it's time for new releases. The first few, as always, are books that you've heard us talk about before on our most anticipated Books of March episode. And I'm super excited about this first book. It was actually one of Natalia's March picks. And it is The Songbook of Benny Lament by Amy Harmon. And I am literally counting down the minutes until it appears in my Audible library because I adore Amy Harmon. And I am recording this in the middle of the night. It's a little before three on Tuesday morning. And this book will be appearing anytime now. And I am so excited. I'm also looking forward to the new Sarah Desai novel. This is The Dating Plan. It is a contemporary romance, a companion to last year's The Marriage Game. It is a podcast favorite. I love it. Natalia loves it. Sarah loves it. I'm hoping that we will all love The Dating Plan just as much. And I talked about Are We There Yet, which is the second novel by Kathleen West. And this is such a delightful book. I love, I loved her first book. I love this one. She's just an author that I'm so excited to keep watching. If you love women's fiction that's messy and imperfect and just has the ability to suck you in from the very first page, I highly recommend it. This one is Are We There Yet? And it's by Kathleen West. And Sarah is very excited about the new Patricia Briggs. This is Wild Sign. It's Alpha and Omega number six. If you're not familiar with Alpha and Omega, this is a spin-off of her Mercy Thompson series featuring Charles and Anna who are a mated pair of werewolves that you kind of get glimpses of in the Mercy books and now with the Alpha and Omega series, Briggs brings their story to life. Okay, so how about some books that we haven't talked about previously? I'm going to start that off with some science fiction. This is Body of Stars. This is by Laura Maylene Walters, and it looks to be like kind of a, oh, I don't know, like feminine, feminist dystopian type of science fiction. It is about a teenage girl 
whose future has been determined by some kind of skill that her brother has. And she's fighting against the things that he predicts will happen to her. I don't fully understand how this is possible. Um, Obviously, the blurb doesn't give a lot of details, but I'm always really intrigued by these types of books, especially when I see women and young girls kind of fighting back against oppression. So this is Body of Stars by Laura Maylene Walter. If you love urban fantasy, I'm guessing you are familiar with Jennifer Estep and her Elemental Assassin series. The 19th book in that series is out today. It is Last Strand. If you're looking for it in audio, unfortunately, it will not be available until August. But if you're okay with it in print or in ebook, you can grab it today. This, of course, features the assassin Jen Blanco in an alternative version of the American South filled with magic and danger and romance and found family. This is a great series. I'm super excited to see what we have to look forward to here. This is Last Strand and it's Elemental Assassin Book 19 by Jennifer Estep. So it is March and that means that we have a new Harlan Coben book to look forward to. So I really enjoy Coben's standalones, and this is not one of those. This is Win. It's the first book in a new series, and it features a character that we first meet in the Myron Bolitar series, which, full transparency, I have not read. Um, So this is, I think, a little bit of a departure from his standalone novels. But if you're a big Coben fan, especially if you like the Myron Bolitar books, you will want to check this out. It is Win by Harlan Coben. Next up is The House Uptown by Melissa Ginsberg. I can't tell if this is supposed to be a young adult thriller or not. But it's about a teenage girl who, after the death of her mother, moves in with her distant grandmother and the grandmother's mysterious assistant. It apparently doesn't take her long to realize that something is very wrong in her grandmother's home. And now she's trying to figure out exactly what that is and whether or not it poses a danger to her. This is The House Uptown, and it's by Melissa Ginsberg. Next up is The Last Secret You'll Ever Keep. This is Jane Anonymous, book two, by Laurie Faria Stollers. And this is definitely a young adult thriller. It is the sequel to Jane Anonymous, and it is about a girl who is trying to uncover the truth about her disappearance. And I have not read the first book in this series, But from what I can tell, it is a series that you do have to read in order. So this is The Last Secret You'll Ever Keep, Jane Anonymous, book two, by Laurie Faria Stallers. We then have Drown Her Sorrows, Brie Taggart, book three, by Melinda Lee. I really enjoy Melinda Lee, especially her Morgan Dane series about a lawyer who teams up with a private investigator to solve cases in a small town, I think in Montana. 
And the Brie Taggart series is a little bit different from that, but still seems to have the, the charm and the sensuality and the suspense that I've come to expect from Melinda Lee's books. So definitely check this one out. It is Drown Her Sorrows, Brie Taggart, book three by Melinda Lee. And I have to mention now Saving Grace. This is by Debbie Babbitt, and this is set in a small town in the Ozarks. And I love these kind of like small mountain towns that we see in a lot of crime novels. I just think they're so atmospheric, um, especially if they happen to take place in the winter. I don't know if this one does or not. But it is about a woman who is the first female sheriff of this town, and she is investigating a string of disappearances that eerily mirror some past crimes that our heroine was apparently involved in years ago. So this one is Saving Grace, and it is by Debbie Babbitt. And last up in terms of mysteries and thrillers and police procedurals, we have The Jigsaw Man. This is Detective Angelica Henley, book one, and it's by Nadine Matheson. This is a debut novel. It is a serial killer thriller. That's very hard to say fast. Um, kind of in the vein of Silence, in the, Silence of the Lambs. So it does promise to be pretty violent and gory, but also super suspenseful. It is definitely a book I plan to pick up just as soon as I can. It is The Jigsaw Man, Detective Angelica Henley, book one by Nadine Matheson. So I want to talk about a few kind of general fiction titles. And first up here is Meant to Be by Jude Devereaux. And I haven't read a Jude Devereaux book in years. And yet she always gives me this like warm, fuzzy feeling when I think back on my early days of reading adult novels and how much I loved Jude Devereaux's writing. So this is a new family saga that she's giving us here. It's about two sisters who are both kind of bound by tradition and yet they are both determined to forge their own paths. Jude Devereaux just keeps writing these books that sound so so good and I need to make a point of going back to her because I did really enjoy her stuff years ago. So this is Meant to Be and it's by Jude Devereaux. We then have the Sweet Taste of Muscadines by Pamela Terry. And this is a book that is right up Stacy's alley. I'm almost positive. It looks like it sort of walks that line between women's fiction and romance. It's about family secrets, about a chance at love, and also about winemaking. So this is The Sweet Taste of Muscadines by Pamela Terry. Then we have some young adult novels to round things out today. And this, I'm starting out with A Better Bad Idea by Laurie DeVore. I love this title. Um, it is about a teenage girl desperate to escape her small southern town. And she's really out of ideas for how to get away, except for one. And it's a bad idea. 
but apparently a better bad idea than some others she's come up with. So this once again is A Better Bad Idea by Lori DeVore. Our Last Echoes by Kate Alice Marshall is out today. Um, Last year, she released Rules for Vanishing, which is kind of a mystery and horror mashup. This says that it's perfect for fans of Twin Peaks and the Hazelwood. So if you like that kind of fantasy mixed with a little bit of horror, you might want to check this out. It is Our Last Echoes by Kate Alice Marshall. And lastly, I have A Queen of Gilded Horns, River of Royal Blood, book two by Amanda Joy. This is the follow-up to last year's River of Royal Blood, which is young adult fantasy um, that I have heard compared to things like Red Queen, Daughter of the Burning City, and possibly Children of Blood and Bone. This is a series that has been on my radar for a while, but that I haven't read yet. Um, Although I really should pick it up because I've heard nothing but good things about it. So in case you are a little bit more current in your reading than I tend to be, this is A Queen of Gilded Horns, River of Royal Blood, book two by Amanda Joy. And that, my friend, brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope that I have managed to expand your TBR pile. I'm also looking back today over the past year and just thinking about how much of a difference books have made in my life, like all the time, but especially this year. It was a year ago today that my state shut down for COVID-19. And this year, 2020 into 2021, has just been so incredibly raw, long and and fraught with so much emotion. So I'm just really grateful for books and authors and the book community. And I hope all of you are staying as well as you can and taking care of yourselves to the best of your ability. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.